Well, Kat, I will tell you, I have fallen down a bit of a YouTube rabbit hole on outdoor ponds. So (laughs) if you need some tips, I can guide you to some very well instructed videos on how to uh, how to construct a backyard (laughs) water space. Whoa, that's how you know you're getting old, right? When you're like peak entertainment on YouTube is like <laughs> Googling how how to fix your extractor fan and uh, oh, yeah, deep yeah. satisfaction in that. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome back to Random But Memorable, the podcast brought to you by 1Password. We're here to bring you lots of friendly security advice, a roundup of the latest security news and some very special guests. Well, shall we get into a little bit of Watchtower Weekly? Yes. Oh, Watchtower Weekly. Yes. Watchtower Weekly is our news segment named after our Watchtower service that's built into 1Password that helps keep you safe online against duplicated passwords, passwords that have been exposed in breaches, websites that have had security problems and stuff like that. We named our news segment Watchtower Weekly because we cover some of the, the biggest security news of the last couple of weeks. And this first one, I'll tell you what, ransomware stays in the top five of news articles these days. Kaseya ransomware attackers demand $70 million, claim they infected over a million devices. This was brought to us by TheVerge.com. So this is yet another Revil attack. Revil ransomware attacks systems using Kaseya's remote IT management software. Kaseya's software is used by managed service providers to perform IT tasks remotely. But on July 2nd, the Russia-linked Revil ransomware group deployed a malicious software update exposing providers who use the platform and their clients. In a new ransom demand, the attackers claim to have compromised more than 1 million computers and demand $70 million to decrypt the affected devices. The Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure, uh, the DIVD, revealed that it appears the exploit used for the breach was the same one they discovered and we're in the process of addressing when the attackers struck. We were already running a broad investigation into backup and system administration tooling and their vulnerabilities, DIVD wrote. Quote, one of the products we have been investigating is Kaseya VSA. We discovered severe vulnerabilities in Kaseya VSA and reported them to Kaseya, with whom we have been in regular contact since then. Earlier in the week, Kaseya CEO Fred Vokala said that, quote, only a very small percentage of our customers were affected, currently estimated at fewer than 40 worldwide. But Sophos VP Ross McKercher said in a statement that, quote, this is one of the farthest reaching criminal ransomware attacks that Sophos has ever seen. At this time, our evidence shows that more than 70 managed service providers were impacted resulting in more than 350 further impacted organizations. We expect the full scope of victim organizations to be higher than what's being reported by any individual security company. Revil's own Happy Blog claimed that more than a million devices have been infected and set a ransom demand of $70 million in Bitcoin to unlock all of them. So far, one of the companies most noticeably impacted by the attack is Co-op, a line of over 800 grocery stores in Sweden that closed Saturday as the attack shut down its cash registers. Whoa, that's rough. Yeah. Yikes. It's interesting because this $70 million, well, I mean, it's a lot of money, but also seems like on the lower end of some of what Revil has done recently. This is like just another one to add to their portfolio now, right? I feel like every week, every week we talk about Revil. They're running riot. Yeah. Yeah. People must be paying them because it's obviously working. They just keep doing it. Yeah, they're building up one hell of a a CV. The scale of their operation must be huge. Mm -hmm. Like I'd love to know how many people they have in this 
this gang of hackers or if it's just, you know, it's one folk sat behind their laptop. <laughs> just one dude. I'm looking up their timeline. In May 2020, they demanded 42 million from Donald Trump. In March 21, they demanded 100 million with the Acer hack. In April 21, they did the Apple products from Quanta Computer. It's about 10 for the, the meat supply hack, right? JBS meat supply. These guys are buying many sports cars now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I've gone from picturing them as sort of like a like a ragtag group of, of distributed people to like they're starting to organize. They've rented out some some office space. They're showing up to work every day with suits, figuring out, you know, who their next victim's going to be. They're going very corporate with it. That's, that's, in, that's <laughs> yeah. the... They have a boardroom. They have meetings. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Are, are they going to be sponsoring ads on YouTube next? <laughs> it, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Currently, uh, currently valued at, at around $500 million. They're hoping to go public uh, sometime around the $4 billion mark. I don't really know how, how they can be stopped. Like, how can it stop happening? Mm, especially when people keep paying them, right? Okay. What if this is like a really long play to go legit? So, like, they're doing like – I mean, this this would be – absolutely bananas but they're doing all this it's terrible like they're extorting people and everything else and then one day they flip a switch and they're like okay so we are revil uh we have a lot of experience in causing damage now hire us to protect against people like us and then they just they they completely flip the script and and go go legit they go black hat to white hat wouldn't they just get arrested for all the bad things they did <laughs> probably <laughs> listen cat i didn't think it all the way through okay i'm just saying something about that really appeals to me. <laughs> the, the fictionalized nature of it it would make a good movie yes exactly yeah all right let's uh let's jump ahead to this story from the bbc eu wants an emergency team for quote nightmare cyber attacks the european commission has announced plans to build a joint cyber unit to tackle large-scale cyber attacks recent ransomware incidents on critical services in ireland and the u.s has quote focused minds the commission said it argued cyber attacks were a national security threat as incidents in Europe rose from 432 in 2019 to 756 in 2020. A dedicated team of multinational cyber experts will be rapidly deployed to European countries during serious attacks, it said. Launching the proposals, European Commission Vice President Margaritas Sheenas said the recent hack on U.S. fuel supplies was, quote, the nightmare scenario that we have to prepare against. The U.S. government has also recently formed a ransomware task force, while the U.K.'s National Cybersecurity Center warns that ransomware is the biggest cyber threat to UK. The European Commission said that the ransomware attack on Ireland's health services is another sign that cyber attacks are a national security issue. The health service executive in Ireland was hit by a ransomware group called Conti, which scrambled IT systems, causing major disruptions to many hospitals. HSE chief Paul Reed said it will take months to fix the system, cost as much as 100 million euros to recover, and will have large human costs. The emergency team aims to provide support virtually and physically using resources from one country to another to deliver operational and technical assistance. I feel like something like this, this emergency team has kind of been a long time coming, right? Especially with all the stuff that Revil's been up to lately and the rise in ransomware attacks. Yeah, exactly. It makes complete sense, doesn't it? I read this in the newspaper and I was like thinking of Revil. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, I was like, thank God. And it's almost crazy that something like this hasn't been around longer. Yeah, you'd think that there were sectors in MI5, MI6 that do this already, but it's surely got to be the, the biggest growing type of attack. 
All right, let's jump ahead. Western Digital My Book Live drives being maliciously erased. This was reported by 9to5Mac.com. A significant number of Western Digital My Book Live NAS owners have reported that their drives have been totally erased. This has been done remotely by unknown attackers. Now, this is an interesting one because when I first heard this, I was like, oh, anyone who's using a My Book drive is in trouble. This is not the typical My Book drive. This is My Book Live. This is a service that was discontinued a few years ago. The company has confirmed that the attacks are occurring and has advised owners to immediately disconnect their drives from the internet. Logs suggest that a script is being run that instructs the drive to perform a factory reset, wiping all data. Western Digital MyBook owners worldwide suddenly found that all of their files were mysteriously deleted and they could no longer log into the device via a browser or an app. When they attempted to log in via the web dashboard, the device stated that they had, quote, an invalid password. I have a Western Digital MyBook Live connected to my home LAN and worked fine for years. I have just found that somehow all the data on it is gone today, while the directories seem there but empty. Previously, the two terabyte volume was almost full, but now it shows full capacity, a Western Digital MyBook owner reported. Such an attack should not be possible as the drives are behind a firewall, with remote access only supposed to be permitted via the company's MyBook Live cloud servers after user authentication. Western Digital says that it does not believe its servers have been compromised. One other possibility is that hackers have obtained login credentials from another website, as many people continue to reuse passwords. On their website, Western Digital has said the MyBook Live device received its final firmware update in 2015. We understand that our customers' data is very important. At this time, we recommend you disconnect your MyBook Live from the internet to protect your data on the device. And that's that, to me, is the real sort of key to the story. Western Digital stopped supporting this thing in 2015, and they decided to keep the servers up. MyBook Live is a way to access your files on your physical hard drive over the internet. And so they said, well, you know, we're not going to support this anymore, but we'll keep the service up because we know that people still still use it. That's fine. But, you know, there's no known exploits today, but, you know, sort of use at your own risk kind of thing. Well, now, since 2015, this has been exploited. Like something has happened, obviously, that's exposed something here. And now people are in trouble. And I think that this is this is one of the problems when you when you use a service that just isn't supported. Companies really need to move to like shutting these things down and saying like, sorry, we're just not doing this anymore. It feels like only a matter of time, right? Yeah. It seems like yep. you, you, you shouldn't really be providing it on the server if the firmware is not being updated, right? It's just accident waiting to happen. It's really easy to sort of Monday morning quarterback this one, of course, because I'm sure that they started to shut the service down. My guess is what happens is they started to shut the service down. People said, no, you can't do that. I use this. Mm. And they said, fine, we'll just eat the server costs, whatever. We'll keep it up, but we're not maintaining this. And then that's that's it. Instead of taking a big hit on PR and everything else and customer support, they decided to just let it roll. But it must have been quite like an unnerving experience, right? If you're like a Western Digital customer and you just go to check your drive and you find nothing's there, it's probably not not too fun for them if i was one of these users i would think of my data as being on that device like the hard drive so then to have it deleted because it's connected to the local network it's like an extra shock somehow yeah because it's kind of like the the device itself is a bit like a a normal hard drive right i think that it is a normal hard drive that is just enabled with this ability to be exposed over the internet yeah right and i mean i'm sure there's a few drives out there that could have afforded to have their <laughs> files wiped and, and you know, <laughs> nobody would have missed them. But for the average person, 
probably not fun to lose all your files. No. no. Unfortunately, that was not the only Western digital story of the week, cropped up yeah. in the news. Yeah. Uh, the Verge also reported that a new vulnerability has been discovered in more of Western Digital's devices. The vulnerability is present on Cloud OS 3 devices and not on the newer Cloud OS 5, which Western Digital recently released as an update. The problem is many of Western Digital's users don't like the new version. That's because it's missing certain functions and features that were available in Cloud OS 3. Western Digital has said it won't be updating Cloud OS 3 with security patches. Uh, there's also the possibility that some users won't be able to upgrade to Cloud OS 5 according to Western Digital's supported devices page. If you own a device that can't be updated to Cloud OS 5, Western Digital's advice is to upgrade to one that can. The researchers found that they could get into a Cloud OS 3 device by remotely updating it with modified firmware. The firmware update functionality is meant to be accessible only to authenticated users, but they were able to get around that because the network-attached storage seemingly has a user on it with a blank password, which they were able to use to authenticate in some cases. Their version of the exploit allows them to carry out commands on the network-attached storage, but other versions could be used for any number of nefarious purposes. Also, because the hack exploits the firmware update function, a hacker could purposefully, or even accidentally, brick the device. So, yeah, security flaws for Western yeah. Digital. Not looking so great lately. All right, uh, why don't we jump ahead to some LinkedIn breaches. 9to5Mac uh, reports LinkedIn breach reportedly exposes data of 92% of users, including inferred salaries. Just a small percentage, then. Just a small percentage, yes. <laughs> yeah. That means I'm almost definitely in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> a second massive LinkedIn breach reportedly exposed the data of 700 million users, which is more than 92% of the total 756 million users. The database is now for sale with records including phone numbers, email addresses, physical addresses, geolocation data, personal and professional experience, background, and inferred salaries. The hacker who obtained the data has posted a sample of 1 million records and checks confirmed that the data is both genuine and up-to-date. Restore Privacy, a privacy news site, reports that the hacker appears to have misused the official LinkedIn API to download the data, the same method used in a similar breach back in April. No passwords are included, but this is still valuable data that can be used for identity theft and convincing-looking phishing attempts that can themselves be used to obtain login credentials for LinkedIn and other sites. With the previous breach, LinkedIn did confirm that the 500 million records included data obtained from its servers, but claimed that more than one source was used. Mm. Yeah, we're all definitely in this. Yeah. Like this is, what do we do? I don't know. There's nothing, to, <laughs> there's nothing to do here. No. Yeah, there's not really much you can do, hey, except just be on the lookout for phishing attempts. Throw all your devices into the lake and go build a cabin in the woods. <laughs> That's our advice. Maybe on a positive note, if there's inferred salaries, you can use it to leverage your salary. It'd be like, hey, this person in a similar position is earning this much. Mm. Match it. Nice idea, Anna. I like your train of thought. Turning it on its head, you know. Yeah. That's really something, Anna. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, shall we move on to our interview for this week? Absolutely. This was a fun one. Dropping by for a chat today is Ricardo Cygnus. Rick is CTO at Fastmail, the privacy-focused email service where your data is for you and you only. With no tracking, no ads, and unique email aliases, Fastmail puts you in control of your data. And you can consider this a warm-up for Rick, as he's also the host of Fastmail's new podcast, Digital Citizen. The first episode of Digital Citizen is available today 
wherever you get your podcasts. Ricardo, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. I always like to start these with a little bit of a backstory. Introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about Fastmail and, and the work that you do there. Sure. So Fastmail, we provide email contacts and calendar hosting and in the email biz mailbox provider, which is like a very specific term of art. But when someone asks me what we do, I say, you know, it's like we're like Hotmail, except our product is really, really good. <laughs> you know, we host your email. We let you read it. We let you connect your clients to it. We'll host your calendars and let you schedule events with other people. So it's a product that you can kind of imagine in your head pretty easily what it is. And then just imagine it being very good. And that's how I like to think of it. We, we want all our features to work well together. And we want them to do things that our users actually want. Sometimes you build a feature and you're like, this is really cool and no one would use this. That's not a feature that we feel good about building. And we also want the features that we build to make people feel good about using them, right? To make them enjoy the experience of reading their mail, writing their mail, dealing with their calendars. These are things that people joke about disliking. And kind of our mission is to make it feel good when you go to work at looking at your personal data that you've got a handle on. It makes you feel in control of your life. Nice. That's really cool. What's interesting about Fastmail is that it's a paid email service Yep. in a sea of free email providers. How is that received? How does that work? I think it works great. <laughs> I, we have a channel on our chat that shows you what people are tweeting at or about us. And a lot of the time you just see someone saying, you see a reply and the person's replying saying, oh, I would use Fastmail. You know, you just pay for it and then it works. And then you go read the original tweet and it's like, I don't know what I'm going to do about my email. I hate it. What should I do? And some customer just kind of comes out and says, I love it. And yet it costs money. And a lot of people are used to the idea that email is like free. It just comes out of the tap like hot water. But providing email isn't free. If you provide email service, you need computers and you need system operators to keep them running. And that's just to offer the worst possible email that you could, right? It works and that's it. Better service costs more money. You got to have programmers to like keep the features working and to adapt to the changing world of technology that email lives in. You need support staff to answer questions for when customer's mail doesn't work. You need interface designers. And email is a weird technology. It seems pretty easy to use and it is pretty easy to use, but making it all work under the hood, it's basically been around for 45 years. Like it's old stuff and you need weird experts who you got to pay money. So providing the service costs money and the person who provides the service, they're spending that money, right? They have to spend that money to provide the service. So what's in it for them, right? How are they getting the money back to recoup the cost? If they make their money by selling you like email templates, right? Like, oh, you pay the money and they give you fancy templates to send your email, then they're going to make choices in the product designed to get you to do that. But nobody makes their money by selling email templates. That's not even a thing. They make their money by selling advertising. So if you're getting this for free, their incentive is to make choices that optimize targeting and selling ads. And maybe you get a service that does the job, but all the choices being made are about getting you to come in and have ads targeted to you or get information about you for targeting ads to you elsewhere. When the only income for a company comes from people paying for the service, then the company's incentive is to serve the customer, right? Give them what they want and that's it. Don't figure out how to get them in the door so then you make money somehow. Get them to pay for admission because what you have is so good. And I think that when you look at services that do this, not just email, but other places, you can see the results. You get a product that serves the user better than anything else because that's the actual way they're, they're making money. Yeah. So it's it's the old adage of if you're not paying for the service, then you're the thing being sold. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that that's probably something that a lot of people are just not even aware of when you look at at some of the big email service providers out there between Yahoo and and Hotmail and Google and stuff like that, that those services, they don't have your privacy in mind. Do you think that there's a pretty big gap there, an awareness gap, I guess? Yeah, and I, I don't think it's really just about email. I think that it's not that people aren't thinking about the privacy of their email and that we need to address that specifically. That's a problem. It needs to be addressed. The problem is a general lack of mindfulness about privacy in general. Privacy needs to be something that we build into our thinking. When we are making choices, how does this affect our privacy? How does this affect everyone's access to parts of our life that we don't realize we're sharing? Now, does email matter more than other parts of our thinking here? I think it does. You know, your email address, it's like your internet social security number, right? Or it's like your, your credit card and you're just giving it out to people all the time, right? You're like, here's, here's this, here's this. And you don't think about the fact that behind the scenes, this can be correlated, right? All of your identity is now put together using your email address. And the privacy of how that's managed really has an impact on your overall privacy landscape. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What do you say to people that sort of come back with the argument of like, I have nothing to hide? Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. who cares? That's such a weird idea. <laughs> I get it. I mean, I don't think of myself as a secretive privacy weirdo, but some amount of privacy is a fundamental human need, right? Like we need to have privacy to feel safe and secure in our lives. Nobody thinks you're a weirdo if you you close your curtains to look out on the street at night, right? Like this is just a thing that we do because we acknowledge we need privacy. It's not a question about having deep, weird secrets that you need to hide so you need privacy. It's a question of living a life in which you feel psychologically secure. The story's about like the department store sends you ads for baby clothes because they've analyzed the way that you buy things and they determine that you're probably pregnant, right? These stories are creepy, And they're creepy because the way that we think about the world is that we decide what we're going to share with the world about our lives. We decide what's our information and what's everyone else's information. But that's not the way the world always works. And there's whole sectors of the economy that are actively trying to change that model. And they're not doing it to improve the human condition, right? They're doing it to get an economic benefit. And you need to think about what is your privacy being traded away for? So saying you have nothing to hide, it's focusing on the idea that there's something weird going on when in reality, your whole life has privacy built into it and you just need to be aware of it and see it's it's the water you're swimming in already. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what makes Fastmail unique in the privacy space then? Like what is it that Fastmail provides that sort of helps people be more private online? The starter of the answer here is when somebody's paying for your fast mail, our question is, what can we do to make their experience better? How do we see what the user needs out of their email and give them a better email experience? And that's the end of it. (laughs) So the benefit here is because we don't think about how, how you said earlier, right? The user being the product. We don't monetize the user's information as something to make a profit on. We make a profit because the user pays us because they like the service. So the, the benefit here on one level is when you come in, all we think about is how to make you happy. We have no incentive to go circumvent your privacy. So if you want privacy, you know that we have no motive to betray you. But if you don't care about privacy, right? First of all, care about privacy. But if you (laughs) don't care about privacy, if you're thinking like, well, you know, I guess privacy is nice, but what I really want is good service. I think it's, you still end up getting a better choice when you look at something that's built on a concept of wanting to have privacy. For me, I'm also, when I go to a service, I don't think about privacy as my main goal. It's table stakes, right? I don't want to use your service if, if you don't respect my privacy. What I really want is great service. With email, it means getting to use all the clients you want to use, using open internet standards, having ways to track your contacts. 
setting up email aliases and mail handling rules to let you manage your own data. These are things you get delivered to you because you're using a service that has to deliver you. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about the aliases feature. Yeah, it's super cool. And it's definitely something that caught my eye. Can you talk a little bit about what they are and how they work? Aliases are super simple. Alias is just another email address. It's an email address on your account and you can use it for different stuff. So for example, I have an alias on my account that goes both to my wife and to me. And it's just an email address. And that's the email address I give my kids teachers when they say, oh, where can we email you? It's like, here, email this. And it goes to me and it goes to my wife. And it's just a normal message, right? We don't need a shared folder. We don't need an extra account. We don't need anything weird. And I have one that's useful just for me, right? It doesn't need to be a mechanism for delivering to multiple people. I do a lot of open source work, right? I write software and I give it away. And I use a different email address for interacting with open source communities than I do for my friends and family. And it's not that these need to be secret, but because people who interact with me in free software and people who interact with me in my family life have different addresses, I can tell Fastmail, look, when mail comes in to this address, put it in my coding folder. And when mail comes into that address, put it in my family folder. And then when I sit down to read my email or to write email, I decide what kind of email I want to deal with, right? And I can have bills go somewhere else. So this is like the most interesting part of aliases to me is not when it's just an extra email address, although already you should have more than one email address. It's a catch-all address. So a catch-all address is a mechanism by which you have a domain and you should have a domain. You have your own domain and you say all the mail to this domain comes to me. And then you can just give out any address you want anytime. So every store that I shop at online gets a different address for me. I don't really have to think about it. I just say, oh yeah, I'm buying this at Gimbal's, right? So you send it to Gimbal's at my domain and now that's happened. Yeah. It's like if we talk about email being like your credit card, right? If you give out your credit card everywhere and something goes wrong, you don't know what happened. If you have a different credit card every place you shop, when you start seeing fraudulent charges on the number you used with Gimbal's, you know that Gimbal's leaked your credit card data. You cancel that card, everything else keeps working. And also, you know, maybe you don't trust them as much. If you start getting mail sent to you at your Gimbal's email address from other vendors who have nothing to do with the shirts you bought there, you know they're sending your email address around and you cancel that address and maybe you cancel doing business with, with Gimbal's. Yeah. Boy, the <laughs> the email address for you and your wife, that one really rings true for me because I can't tell you how many emails we exchange with teachers yep. where they don't hit the reply all button. <laughs> it's just Yeah, that's right. And and not to slag off on teachers, they have plenty going on. Everybody makes yeah. Everybody makes that mistake. But it's so funny. It's just like, you know, I'll just say to my wife, Hey, did you get that email? No, I didn't get it. Or, you know, yes, I did. Great. Can you forward it to me so I can read it too? Yeah, that's right. A lot of these things are just there's lots of little usability problems in I mean everywhere in life, but especially in email. And the question's like, how do you just make it a little easier? for everybody to do the right thing. And aliases correctly applied address a bunch of those problems. Yeah, yeah, that's really, really cool. What about features like spam filtering and stuff like that? I'm assuming that's sort of another one of those things that's just part of the service. Yeah, that's just table stakes, right? I mean, if you you want to offer email without spam filtering, I mean, go for it. But (laughs) I don't know. Spam is such a problem. It always makes me think, how much further along would we be in the world of internet communication if there weren't people who just wanted to give you a hard time. (laughs) And when I complain about that, someone smarter than me will usually say, well, isn't that the case with all crime? And I say, right, (laughs) right. Okay. I'm not living (laughs) in his email is not a special world, (laughs) but yeah, we have spam filtering and it, I think that it's pretty good and we continue to make it better, but it's, such a table stakes feature that it's almost, it's not a whole lot to say about it other than we do pretty well. Nice. That's cool. So you mentioned that email is a very old 
technology. I mean, it, yeah. all the way back to the beginning of the internet, right? Reminds me a lot of conversations around banking technologies, you know, whenever you yeah. talk about yes. the banks, it's like, oh, that's old. Don't touch it. <laughs> please, please don't touch this. Yep. Given sort of the legacy of it, what do you see as the future of it? Okay. I think the first thing I should do is give a highly technical plug and mention JMAP. JMAP is a, it's a protocol. It's an internet protocol that we developed here at Fastmail, and it's meant to replace a bunch of our old technology for email, like from, from the 80s. And it replaces that technology with things that are newer, simpler, and more powerful, which is not a combination you often get altogether. It's often like, well, yeah, it's it's new and more powerful, but it's also a lot more complicated. Or it's more powerful and it's simpler, but also it's built on 1960s technology that has largely been abandoned. You will need to re resurrect. I think that as we see more parts of email, and not just email, JMAP is used for contacts and calendars, which we also manage, and we use it for file management. As we see more things move into JMAP, this is going to be really great for everybody. But for most people, if I talk about this, what they're going to hear is, I have a means to make email better and you will neither understand it nor ever think about it. So <laughs> it's not a killer topic for non-programmers. But the big deal about JMAP is it's given away. JMAP is a free standard. Anybody can implement it. It's available. You can download all the specifications gratis and it doesn't lock you into a walled garden. It's not like we're going to replace email with Fast mail mail, which all you have to do is get a paid account or a, you know, a, not even a free account paid for by advertising. We just say, here's this thing everyone can use. It interoperates with existing email and it gives us a means to kind of start building new features, not on 40 year old technology. But what's actually going to make mail better? Because the future of email, you asked what the future is and I'm just talking about making it better. So the first thing I should say is the future of email is better email. <laughs> and what makes it better? First, I think breaking your mail into different streams. Right? This is what I've been talking about maybe this whole conversation, saying, here's my pile of mail from my friends. Here's my mail from my family. Here's my work email. That makes dealing with your email a lot more enjoyable because you know what you're dealing with. Right? You sit down and you know the context in which you're going to operate. Working this way is something that's been a around and available forever, but most people don't do it because it takes effort. And so we need to find ways to let people effortlessly separate their mail so they can deal with it in a way that doesn't feel surprising each time they get the next message. Big conversations need to get easier. You talk about having uh, someone send a, a response to the wrong email. They didn't hit reply all, or they've added people in and you didn't know what happened. Like there's a lot of ways this goes wrong. Big conversations in email need to be a lot easier because email is a great mechanism for having thoughtful conversations where you stop and compose your thoughts and think about it. But if you don't know who's getting them or where the conversation is, is being sent to, that's a problem. And the other thing that needs to get better is tiny messages. Sometimes I get an email and I want to hit reply and just type yes, send. But that makes me the weirdo, right? Like <laughs> you don't want to get an email that just says yes, but it's also weird when you end up having to write like, thank you for your email. I received it and my day is going well. The answer to your question is yes. So long. <laughs> we need mechanisms that let us get the things we want out of instant messaging, out of Facebook reaction kind of styles to let us interact in a simple, efficient way that doesn't feel like we're subverting the idea of what email is. We need to think about what kind of interactions with other human beings make people feel good about communicating with them. And then we need to lean into them. And I hope that remains the future of email, figuring out how to make people feel better about communication. I love the idea of reclaiming a little bit of how email started, which is this quick asynchronous communication. I think that it's been sort of shunted off in the last few years as like this inefficient way to communicate that you just yeah. you just go to if you absolutely have to. And, and I That's love right. the idea of 
of reclaiming a bit of that, right? And there's a lot of reasons that's happened. It's not that we've made a mistake. It's that we have developed new technologies outside of email, but those technologies have their own problems, right? They're offered in walled gardens that force you to interact only with people in that sphere of engagement, right? Like, yeah. oh, I chat with these friends on Discord and these friends on Slack and these people some other place, but email, I'm just on email. What do you mean, which email? I'm just on email. That's the benefit we need to bring back by folding these technologies back in. So FastMail talks a lot about being good internet citizens. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah. Digital citizenship is a really interesting topic. There's like a lot of stuff that's been written about it and a lot of competing viewpoints. What I mean when I talk about digital citizenship is pretty simple. When I was in third grade, we had a curriculum that included a class on citizenship. And what you were meant to learn in this third grade class on citizenship was how to be a good citizen. And the topics kind of folded into this are how is society meant to work? Why did we mean for it to work that way? Was that a good idea? Had we made good or bad decisions? And what should we do about it? How do we make it stay good or stop being bad? And it's a lot to put on a third grader, but those are all questions that we should all be thinking about all the time in our lives. And digital citizenship is the same set of questions, but it's about the internet. And since the internet is everywhere, this is a big political question. And it's not just about your online life. It's about your connected life. It's about the life that you have on the internet and off the internet where you are connected to the internet all the time. For FastMail itself, our primary activities to make connected life better, we build tools that put people in charge of their own data. Right? So we say, you have this data, it belongs to you, and you can decide how to share it. You can decide how you want to interact with it. We're not driving the ways that you interact with it to, to force you to behave the way we want. We're giving you that control. That's the first thing we do to try and make our internet, our connected society better. And the other is we take the technologies for this and we give them away. We want to, other companies to be able to work together in the kind of interactions that we're facilitating. I could talk about this kind of ad infinitum. And I will be doing that soon. We are working on our own podcast inside of FastMail, which is called Digital Citizen. And it's about this question. That's going to be shown up this summer and I hope it'll be great. Nice. That sounds awesome. That's a great title for a podcast. That's a, that's a good eye catcher. I like that. I, I like it too. I was trying to think today where the name came from and I, it escaped me. So I've got to find out who I, who I need to pat on the back. Oh, it, so in this case, what happens is you just take full credit since you can't remember where it came from. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah. Just uh, you come up with a good story as to how you invented it, and then you just own it, and it's fine. <laughs> great. Random but memorable is also a great name. Uh, so, you know, we've talked a lot about different tips and stuff for people uh, throughout the interview. Do you have any that we haven't touched on yet? Anything that people should really know if they're trying to stay safe online? I think the first thing, I hope it doesn't sound like a cop-out, but the first thing is just think about privacy, right? Just think about it at all. You don't have to get obsessed. You don't have to, you don't have to delete all your accounts. You don't have to switch to burner phones and like stop communicating <laughs> with your family because they're only on Facebook. You don't have to be a, a reactionary like that. Just think about like when you're typing something into a website, why are you telling this website that? And if the answer is, it is the only way to conduct this business I must conduct, great, carry on. And sometimes you're going to say, I don't actually know why they need my zip code. And, and it's okay, right? It's, it's okay that you don't know. You thought about it. Like just having the idea of, I have privacy. This is a priority in my life. It is a need that I need to feel good about my life. I will think about it as I go through my day. Just a casual thing that's important to you. The other, if we want to talk about email is, your email address is your identity. It's the way online services tend to know who you are. 
And so you should think about how many identities do you need? I think most people need more than one. If you don't have one for work and one for your personal life, you need to fix that because that's just a work-life balance question. But even in your personal life, you probably have more contexts than one that you deal in. And separating these identities beyond just privacy, which it's a big deal for, separating these identities can help you lead a a life in which you sort of compartmentalized your concerns intentionally and have a way to think about how you're dealing with the, the aspects of your life. Yeah, those are great. That's really cool. Okay, so at this point, people are scrambling to go and sign up for Fastmail. So <laughs> where do they go? Like, where where do, where do people go to learn more about Fastmail, sign up, and, and stay up to date? Yeah, so Fastmail.com is our domain. We have a great about section. We, we really are believers, and our, our page talks about what are our values, how does that drive what we do. And if I want to tell people they should make decisions based on how they're going to be respected, I, that's what I would tell people to look at. After they did that, they can sign up for a free trial and see, like I said, it's really good service. And that's just, you click the button that says sign up. It takes you to a sign up form. Nice. Very cool. Very cool. Well, excellent. That's it for today. Rick, thank you so much for coming on. This was a great chat. I I enjoyed this a lot. Oh, it's my pleasure. To bring us to a close now, we have three-word password, which I think we all agree is the best part of the week. Yep. I love it. The best way to spend your week and the worst way to share your password. Hey, I like it. So this is where we use cryptic clues to guess the three mystery words created by our memorable password generator. So here we go. Here's the first clue. So a laboratory tool commonly used in chemistry, biology and medicine to transport a measured volume of liquid, often as a media dispenser. The first of their kind were made from glass, but they are now more commonly made of plastic. The tools come in several designs for various purposes, from single-piece glass tools to more complex, adjustable or electronic versions. Measurement accuracy and precision varies greatly depending on the instrument. What do we think, guys? I'm with Rue on on the suggestion that uh, Rue say what you wrote down in our secret. I I typed that it, that this was a pipette. <laughs> a pipette. A pipette. A pipette. It is correct. <laughs> you are correct. Well done. Hey, hey, hey. Nice. A pipette. I like it. It's it's how we pronounce it here in the states. It's a pipette. Is it? Yes. A pipette. Absolutely. Are you having me on? No, I'm not. <laughs> a pipette. Yes, a pipette. Wow. Yeah. I'm not surprised at all that you pronounce it like that. I like it. It's better than our, our way. <laughs> pipette. I think ours is a bit French, isn't it? Oh, that makes sense. It's a pipette. Yeah. <laughs> pipette. Okay. Next up, we have a powdered spice with a deep orange red colour and a mildly pungent flavour made from the dried and ground fruits of certain varieties of pepper. The peppers used in making the spice originate from North America, in particular central Mexico, where they have been cultivated for centuries. It can range from being mild to hot. The flavour also varies from country to country, but almost all plants grown produce the sweet variety. Mm. Is it paprika? It is paprika. Yes! Yes. Cat, awesome. Great job. You're both smashing it this week. Do they all begin with P this week? <laughs> <laughs> they don't. I was tempted. Ooh, okay. okay, final one. An imaginary line that passes from the North Pole to the South Pole through any place on the surface of the Earth, used to show the position of places on a map. It is also the term used to describe each of the set of pathways in the body along which vital energy is said to flow in acupuncture and Chinese medicine. 
So what do we think? Is it longitude? It is not longitude. What? I think I've got this or or like I don't actually have any word on the tip of my tongue, but when I think about the set of pathways, the set of pathways in the body along which vital energy is said to flow. So I was thinking neural pathways and then I was thinking dermatomes, but that's not right. Vital energy. Oh my gosh. No, I know this is right on the tip of my tongue. Your chi, your um there's seven of them. The chakras. Hang on, it's coming. I'm getting there. Um, <laughs> I can give you one final clue. Give us a clue. Which is a fun fact. But it's my second favourite nut butter brand. What? That's not a good clue. Not my first favourite. My second favourite. I don't eat nut butter. I don't know what no <laughs> clue for me. I mean, it's not... I'm so into acupuncture as well. It's not It's not a coordinate. No. It begins with an M. I don't want to. I don't want you to tell us this one because I think I can get this. <laughs> I feel like it's going to annoy me when I know it. Wait, is it a meridian? It is a meridian. Oh, All right. Yes, Ruth. Well done. Well done. <sighs> Brilliant work. For the record, kudos. You could have gone prime meridian, and then we would have had all P's. Okay, like oh, you could have done that. Right then, smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would we have got that? I was actually waiting. As soon as I saw the imaginary line, and if, if Anna had said it was all peas, I would have said prime meridian. And I don't know why I couldn't just drop prime and get meridian right away. <laughs> there you go. Pepet paprika meridian. Oh, that was great. Wonderful. Nice. Well done. Thank you. The dream team. Great job, Kat. Great job, Rue. I love it. All right. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of another thrilling episode. Love you both. This was fun. Yeah. Love you guys. Love you both. Bye for now.